Coming up on today's show, we cover our favorite LastPass alternative. We talk about why more boxes might be better than one, and we confess our undying love for Arch. I'm Alex. And I'm Chris. And this is Self-Hosted 39. I too. I, too, Alex, have been worshipping at the altar of Arch recently. After experimenting with various different distributions, I like that I can set up a minimal system, and I actually have been enjoying using Arch as my base application server. I don't run apps directly on Arch, but in containers or VMs, I find it to be a fantastic platform. been doing it for a while now. This comes hot off the heels of this week's Linux Unplugged, where... I think it's fair to say you got in your soapbox and preached the arch gospel, huh? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think what I what I got in my soapbox about was it's become kind of a joke or a meme. Oh, arch users, people are just trying to flex and talk about how elite mm-hmm. they are. Uh, when the reality is, uh, that's not it at all. I, I simply just want something that makes it really quick to get software deployed or up and running and maybe have the most minimal Linux install before I run an application. And I find it great for that without sort of all of the upfront work that something like Gen 2 or Linux from scratch takes. Hey, bro, bro, bro. I run Arch, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of how it started. And then it became, it kind of grew from there, didn't it? It did, yeah. I, I definitely feel the shame. Like, when you say to people, I run Arch, it's not because you want to flex, or at least I don't want to flex. It, it's because I, I just love it so gosh darn much. And I think, other people would too if they just gave it a chance. And well, why is that? I think we should talk about maybe just really briefly why it is you love it so much. Because it's not it's not the forums, right? It's not the arch, it's not the arch user base necessarily. It's the practicality of it, right? It is. I am one command away from pretty much any piece of software that I want. Yay dash s everything literally is. <laughs> you know, the AUR is is Arch's secret source. Think of anything. Think of a custom kernel. You know, VFIO stuff is is pretty complex to get into. There is a custom kernel already compiled, or there's a package build to compile a custom kernel already there for you, ready to go. Uh, you want some esoteric piece of software that on Ubuntu would be a PPA, or on Fedora would be a copper repo. I don't have to worry about any of that. It's just yay-s install, and, and off you go. And Besides that, you know, as a new user, when I was getting into Linux in 2013, 14 sort of time period, the Arch documentation is just the best around. And it's crowdsourced. It's not always completely accurate and always completely totally up to date, but it's good enough that even an idiot like me can pick it up and get going when I knew basically nothing. And at that point, that was when Arch had just transitioned to System D. So I, I kind of credit Arch and Systemd and Docker as being the three kind of pillars of, of what got me into Linux and being able to get me over that initial new user, not knowing what I'm doing, hump. Those three things together, for me, were just game-changing. There really is a Linux for every type. Obviously, there's benefits to running something like Debian or CentOS or Ubuntu LTS on a server that make just a ton of sense for most people. I'm the type of user, I don't mind logging in at least once a week, doing a 
package update and seeing what needs to be installed. I I don't always have time for that. I don't I don't always get to do it weekly, but I generally am able to do it at least once a month, if not twice a month. And that seems to be all it's taken for me to keep these systems up and running. And the benefit that I get from a self-hosting standpoint is my operating system is continuously updated. I don't I don't have this event that comes up every few years where I kind of brace myself and do this massive upgrade. I instead I take my medicine kind of on a weekly basis and it kind of stretches out the changes so that they're just more minor. They're more frequent, but they're more minor. I, I prefer that. And then when you add something like Alex was saying, the AUR with the package management system, I can get something up and running in moments on Arch that would take a bit of fiddling around, maybe adding a package repository, following a guide to add the keys and all that kind of stuff to a machine. And then I have the joy of watching that repo go by every time I do an apt update or a DNF update. And not a huge fan of that system. It works. And for some people, it works really well. For me, I just like to have it all integrated with a single package manager, single set of updates that I do. And it's always guaranteed to be at least close to guaranteed, I should say, the latest version when I install something. So I know the security stuff's taken care of, the feature stuff that I've been reading about online, I know it's already landed. And then anything that's more complex than a basic system-level tool, I'm already loading in a container anyways. And those are often based on Alpine or Ubuntu, etc. And it kind of doesn't really matter what the host OS is running as long as it's secure and up-to-date. I kind of view Arch a little bit like stock Android. You know, like on a Pixel phone or, well, not OnePlus anymore, but on definitely on the Pixel phones. Like, it has no opinion. There's no opinionation, really, in how it does stuff. It just gives you stuff and lets you figure it out by yourself. And for that reason, it makes a really great minimum viable server. It also makes a really great workstation. It could make a great cloud box because you can only install very, very minimal numbers of packages. So from a security perspective, there's a smaller attack surface. The downside is that the industry, and I use air quotes around industry, in the cloud at least, does seem to be settling on Ubuntu, like if you look at market share and stuff like that. So you are kind of trailblazing your own path by going with Arch, but uh, I would argue that what distro you run doesn't really matter that much anymore. I mean, I, I do feel pretty strongly that you know all my systems will just run Arch. Hmm. Uh, you know, if it's a laptop or a desktop or whatever. But if it's a server, I'll probably put Ubuntu on it, even though everything we've just said, because it has Canonical behind it doing a bunch of testing, especially when it comes to ZFS and the licensing there. That's a tricky one, even on Arch. Just a bunch of stuff, a bunch of testing and, and things like that mean that I don't run Arch absolutely everywhere, just most places. I have found that for the cloud, I'm sticking with Ubuntu LTS for the most part. I find that works really well. And for my Raspberry Pis that are at the RV on an LTE connection, I'm also running Ubuntu LTS there in part because they've done a really good job with their Pi support. But also, less updates is a feature when you're on cellular. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm already updating my laptop enough as it is. So there's those, those elements of it. But uh, when I have an opportunity to run local physical hardware like I do here at the studio, it's all Arch. It works fantastic. I do have one Arch box up in the cloud that uh, is like an example of Arch in the cloud gone wrong, where the vendor tried to pin to a certain version of the kernel. And of course, that just doesn't work very well with Arch. 
So I think it is a little trickier in the cloud. And it's not a 100% solution. And what I was just advocating now, I guess, here and in that episode of Linux Unplugged is l- let's not mock people for their choice of distribution. There's functionality behind everything and like perfectly good reasons to run SUSE as well. Uh, my buddy on Coda Radio, Mike, that's what he prefers to run. He likes SUSE in the enterprise. He runs Pop! OS on his desktop and SUSE in the rack. And that works really well for him. It's not, it's not like we're trying to create a this distribution is better debate. What we're trying to say is let's include everybody in the conversation and not mock people for their choice of distribution. And as a couple of counter-narrative guys, I guess, we happen to find Arch actually works pretty well if you're willing to maintain it. Now, I know you covered some stuff about LastPass in Linux Unplugged. This is, this is like Linux Unplugged Plus this episode, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, LastPass have been doing some shenanigans with their free tiers and stuff. I think we've all been expecting this for quite a long time since uh, they were acquired. Now, they are limiting the access to unlimited devices of one type. So to clarify what that means is you can access LastPass free on an unlimited number of computers or an unlimited number of mobile devices, but not both on their free tier. I say enough. I say that stinks. And we have a recommendation for you. I agree. I mean, the price right now is kind of reasonable. It, it's like, what, four bucks a year or something? It's not outrageous for a year. I mean, but it stinks the way it's going about. And I agree. It, it, it's time to look at an alternative. And this is the self-hosted podcast. And I think both of us landed on Bitwarden pretty quickly. I have some trepidation here, though. Hold on a minute. I think LastPass is $27 a year. It's two dollars up, two dollars twenty-five a month billed annually. Oh, you're kidding me! Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, geez. Okay. Ah, uh-huh. yeah. You're right. So that's that's not nearly the deal I thought it was. That's a bad deal. <laughs> Especially when Bitwarden is only ten dollars a year. That's if you buy an annual plan. But if you don't even want to do that, you can self-host the Bitwarden server, which is just so cool. Yeah. I really love seeing this, and I know it's a little complicated. I think it requires SQL, among other things. So the community has come up with an alternative. Yeah, there's a, a project called Bitwarden RS, which is written in Rust. Da-da-da. Where's Wes when you need him? <laughs> <laughs> and this is a, a, a Bitwarden server that can run in a container that will essentially perform the same role as the $10 a year hosted service. The difference being is you own all the data. It remains on your servers or your VPS or whatever. So there's a couple of ways you could go about doing this. The first and most obvious way is to spin up a Linode or something like that and throw Bitwarden on there um, and just call it good. And because it's your password manager, I would probably caution against running this on a shared cloud VPS. You know, if, you, if you're hosting a ton of websites uh, and it's a very public, you know, VPS, probably wouldn't put your password manager on that same system. I would put it on a separate system just so you're reducing the blast radius of any bots or anything doing something crazy with the the web servers. Uh, The other thing you can do is run it on your LAN. And I think the running it on a separate system becomes less important when it's on your network. And the idea of, of running it on your LAN, of course, is that your data never leaves your house, right? And, and that will hopefully reduce the risk even further now the downside of running your own password manager backend is you've got to configure secure access to it 
So that could be using WireGuard or some other kind of authentication through SSH or something like that. But ultimately, you're going to want to be really careful and really sure you know what you're doing from a security perspective before you start going and storing all your passwords on a public system. That's where you could make the argument that it could just be worth paying for their hosted service. And this is where I'm currently experiencing my trepidation. I I 100% know I could self-host it. Uh, and the nice thing about this Rust version of their server is really minimal resources. So you could really run it on anything. So I could run it on my Raspberry Pi or I could run it easily here on the server at the studio. But I, I'm not sure I want to. You know, there's something about the the master password vault. It's such a sacred responsibility that I almost trust an organization like Bitwarden to be more focused on securing that platform than I am. Not that I I really have no concerns about our security, really. But there's something that still gives me pause. They got one job to do, right? And I've actually paid Bitwarden the ten dollars a year for uh, two or three, maybe four years at this point. I've been very, very happy. It just does the job. I never have to think about it. All of the autofill stuff on Android and iOS just works fantastically well. You know, $10 is that kind of screw it amount of money when it's spread over an entire year. You know, it's less than a dollar a month. And yeah. to just not have to worry about it and to just not have to think about it for, what, 80, 90 cents a month, that's worth it for me. It reminds me of why I kind of like supporting Nebukasa and how supporting Nebukasa goes into Home Assistant development and makes Home Assistant better. By subscribing to Bitwarden, you're helping them come up with a sustainable business model that encourages them to make the password manager better and keep their service secure. So it, it incentivizes the right things. And on top of that, it means I don't have to host it myself. I haven't actually made my decision uh, because I, I have kept a lot of business stuff in LastPass for a while. I know I like Bitwarden, so I've always thought that's what I would jump to. Uh, and so I went over to their to their subscription pricing page, and they also offer team plans for as little as like $3 per user, and that's still pretty reasonable. So I think that might be the direction I end up going. I'm going to research more about how they host it first because I know a big use case for me, a really big use case for me is mobile access. It's such a crapshoot with me. I don't just connect from one machine. I could, It's just ridiculous, especially when you bring in like traveling or setting up family member systems or and hosts. Yeah, it's just it's it's ridiculous. So I I ha I kind of like the idea of something where I'm not handing out WireGuard connections to 15 different people so that way they can access the central password database. <laughs> and don't forget as well, generally the time when you need Bitwarden the most is when your device is completely brand new or empty. Right. And so you've always got that awkward first 10 minutes where you're getting you know, your two-factor auth set up again and your Bitwarden whatever set up again. And once you've got those two things, you're good to go generally. But yeah, I can see you don't want to be handing that out to randos. If you do want to self-host it though, Alex, like somebody in our audience who may have a different use case, it's easier than ever now because the Bitwarden Rust server has a Docker image fully up to date um, as of like 19 hours ago as we record this. It's, it's like uh, the old proverb, if, if something isn't Dockerized at this point, does it even exist? <laughs> now, another nice thing that I do with Bitwarden is I actually share passwords with my wife. She has a Bitwarden. I don't think she pays the premium. I think she just has the basic free account. But we created an organization. And when you create a particular login, you can assign that login to an organization and share it with that organization. So certain passwords for us like Amazon, eBay, you know, stuff that you want to share, uh, it goes into that shared uh, area, if you like, that shared organization. And we've both got access to it. 
I find that really useful. There's, of course, other solutions out there. Another beloved one in the audience is KeePass and KeePassX. And mm-hmm. there's several solutions to this, but Bitwarden is the one we both landed on, I think in part because of the UI, the browser integration, the ability to self-host, and the quality of the mobile apps all kind of come together to make it our favorite choice. So whilst we're sort of kind of on the topic of security, why don't we discuss the Plex hoopla that's been going on as well about this uh, botnet thing that's been amplifying stuff across the internet? This stinks because, you know, you you got a Plex server going, you've opened it up to the internet so that way you can share it. Some scanner finds your server, indexes it, and then some botnet author figures out a way to take advantage of a vulnerability in Plex to amplify by a factor of five their DDoS traffic. They kind of corral all of these different Plex installs together to kind of do this amplified attack against a single source. And it just happened the last week as we're recording this. NetScout said that uh, there was a DDoS for hire service that recently turned misconfigured Plex media servers into amplifying attack servers. (laughs) Rot row. Yeah, not only does it suck up all of your bandwidth and attack somebody, but it also runs your server like crazy. (laughs) It's just, it's bad. Yeah, and what really kind of, I don't want to use the word scared me, but I suppose so, you know, gave me cause for a concern at least, was just opening port 32400, 32400 uh, on TCP, just opening that port alone is enough to be vulnerable because it's such a common port people will scan it and find it and then be like, oh, this guy's running Plex. Yeah. So what I've done since this vulnerability to kind of remove myself from the the risk factor is I've closed that port in my firewall and I have started to define a custom server URL in my Plex server settings. And I set a DNS entry in Cloudflare. That then points to my WAN IP. From there, that then points to a traffic instance that's running on the same server as Plex. Um, And from there, it does a standard reverse proxy thing and just does the remote access as if I was going through port 32400 uh, like I was last month. Very easy fix, and uh, I highly recommend you take a look into that. That's a great idea because Netscout said that after a scan they conducted, they found about 27,000 servers on the internet that can be abused this way. So if it, it doesn't mean you have to shut off remote Plex, but it, it does it does mean you should probably take some steps to protect yourself. Yeah, just put it behind a reverse proxy. I mean, it doesn't have to be traffic. It could be Nginx, could be whatever. But uh, just don't open any ports in your firewall. You absolutely don't need to. Which actually brings me very nicely onto a very, very quick bit of follow-up about the WireGuard rant I had last week on uh, OpenSense. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out, like an idiot, I uh, I set a slash 16 subnet in my DHCP server. Now, for those that don't know, what that means is every address from 192.168.0 all the way up to 192.168.255 was within my DHCP range. So I had 65,000 or whatever DHCP addresses available. Uh, the, the upshot of that was when I was trying to route through WireGuard, I was doing a 192.168.13 subnet. And so the remote servers were, were hearing that were receiving the commands from my laptop or my phone or whatever, but they didn't know how to route back to the client device because so far as they were concerned, the slash 16 overrode everything and it just thought everything was on the LAN. So what I did was I changed the subnet of the WireGuard VPN to a 10 dot something 
So it was in a completely different subnet. And I reduced my slash 16 down to a more manageable slash 20. So I've only got a few thousand, like 4,000 addresses now instead of 65,000. I think that should tie me over for a bit, right? Nicely done. I definitely always suggest if people can... Different subnets for the different VPN endpoints makes it so much simpler, uh, you know. And I've tried, I've tried to do that myself so many times because it it can solve you just a few simple problems and keeps it a little clearer in your head. Like I know that the studio is dot four and home is dot seven, and the WireGuard network is actually a dot ten network. It's all separated out. Yeah. So I just wanted to be absolutely clear that the problem was the user not OpenSense or WireGuard. It was totally my fault. And uh, I, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to one of our listeners who reached out to me on Discord and uh, did a screen share with me and walked me through it for half an hour because he works in uh, security down in Charlotte in North Carolina. And he sort of taught me some new stuff about you know networking and triage and that kind of stuff. So that was pretty cool. So huge thank you to, to that listener. Sounds like somebody we should uh, buy a beer for when... Uh Community events happen again. <laughs> One day. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you'd like to learn networking or anything else, ACG has 20% off annual plans right now. We'll have a link in the show notes or just go to cloudguru.com. And when you sign up, use the promo code SPRINGINTOCLOUD21. You know the cloud is growing. There's lots of new services and systems, more every day it seems. And that also means the demand for skilled cloud professionals is growing too. of hiring managers say a cloud certification makes a candidate more attractive. So go grow your skills with hands-on labs and learning. Keep up with change and develop the skills you need with a cloud guru. To get that 20% off, sign up for an annual plan and use that promo code SPRINGINTOCLOUD21. 95% of learners say that a cloud guru's tools and content directly help them advance their careers. Spring into Cloud 21. Link in the show notes or go to cloudguru.com. Ryan writes in with an IGPU question. Hey there, friends. I'm a big fan of the show. I currently am in the process of building an off-grid house in New Zealand. Oh, oh, that's the dream. I know, (laughs) right? Amazing. Can we come visit? (laughs) Self-hosted on tour. Uh, power, Power consumption is key, so I want a small box to run basically everything I need, which thankfully isn't going to be that much. My question is, is it possible to run a Linux server and pass through an IGPU to a Windows VM for Blue Iris? while still using the iGPU for containerized applications like Plex. I can't seem to see any problem with this in theory, but wonder if you have any ideas. Love your work, Ryan. What do you think about this one? I have also contemplated, is there a way I can have my cake and eat it too when it comes to an iGPU and a low-power system? I thought I'd solved this problem. I thought I had the answer. And it was a technology called GVT-G, which is a virtual graphics card kind of slicing thing that basically lets you take a an Intel GPU built into your CPU and slice it up into two slices and give one to one VM and one to another. So the obvious use case for that is to give one slice to a Windows VM for Blue Iris and then give the other slice to a, another Linux VM for Plex and then keep the host as clean as possible. Yeah. However, and I've written a blog post about this this week, um, unfortunately, the performance of GVTG is horrible. <laughs> I found it to be anywhere from 58 to 82% slower than QuickSync being run natively on the bare metal host. Holy smokes. I did not expect that at all. 
Yeah, so my test that I did was it was pretty unscientific, um, but it was a very real world use case for me. So I used the Plex Sync for Offline playback feature, and I chose a high bit rate, so about a thirty-eight megabyte a second, um, or is it megabit? I always get confused. Video file encoded with MPEG four and H two six four with a DTS master audio soundtrack. And I used the four megabytes a second 720p sync for offline playback option within Plex. And I did that uh, on an iPad. You know, that was the client. I don't think that bit really mattered too much. But I did a few different tests. So I did a software render. So this is using the Intel i5-8500 CPU. I picked that up for about $100 used on eBay. So it's a pretty good value. 4 gigahertz, I think 4.1 gigahertz, 6-core CPU. With CPU rendering only, I saw a 1.1 times speed. The best I saw running it natively in QuickSync on the host was 10.2. And then on a sliding scale between those two numbers of 1 times and 10 times, with the GVTG stuff set into two-slice mode, I saw only about a 1.8, 1.9 times. So it was faster than CPU uh, software encoding, you know, twice as fast, actually. But it was 80-what-something, 82% slower than running it on the bare metal host. So the other problem that I ran into, besides, you know, leaving 80-plus percent performance on the table, uh, was stability. Unfortunately, that wasn't a great story either. The problems I ran into were... So I was running Proxmox as the base OS because the... Proxmox Wiki actually has a really great entry about enabling GVTG and QuickSync and pass-through and all that kind of stuff. And it was really painless to get going. It only took me an hour or so to figure it all out and get it get it going. But the stability was just not there. My evidence is only anecdotal, though. Because of the instability, I couldn't really get the log files that I needed because the system either had to be hard reset or it was just hanging and processes were just hanging or I was getting kernel panics it was just a mess. And, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day... Just not not something you could just let run and, and just not have to think about it. No, unfortunately it wasn't. And, you know, things worked fine until I powered on the Windows VM that, for, that was running Blue Iris. And that system has six 4K cameras going into it. So it's, it's got a decent amount of load. Now, I know for a fact that the i5 CPU can handle that load because it's been running in my HP 290 Slim for six months just fine handling everything perfectly but for some reason when it's in the the gvtg mode it just i guess because it's the performance is so poor with the emulation whatever they're doing to slice the, the gpu up however they're doing it in the intel drivers it just meant that as soon as i powered up blue iris within 30 minutes the whole proxmox system was just unhappy you know like the web ui wouldn't load sometimes or you actually go and reboot the system and you'll see system D printing out waiting on Kimu guest to shut down for like 30 minutes. And so it wasn't just guest stability issues, but the entire host. Uh-huh. Ooh. Yeah. That's, that's, well, that's just a deal breaker. <laughs> oh man, Alex. At the end of the day, you want it to be on and, and functional. And yes, this is a hobby and I do enjoy messing about with servers, but there comes a point. It's not a full-time job. No, nah, exactly. There comes a point where you're like, this S just needs to work now. Yeah. 
And it just didn't, unfortunately. I think you cross the threshold of devoting more time to this than most folks quite a while ago. I mean, even taking a pass at the different encoding options, that's good insight. And it really shows you that you're, I mean, yeah, it's almost twice as fast if you use GVT. When you consider the stability issues, I would rather just use CPU encoding. CPU encoding with QuickSync, because that's only pulling down about 10 watts when it's doing a full 1080p stream. And it's running at 10x real time. So it actually, you know, in terms of performance per watt is the best thing out there. I actually also, just for giggles, use my 1080 Ti to run one of these transcodes. So QuickSync is running at 10x. A 1080 Ti, which is pulling down 18 times the amount of power, is running at 17 times. So 10x versus 17x. Wow. It's a good way to see the performance discrepancy between Intel's GPU and the NVIDIA GPU right there, isn't it? You can really... And then, of course, CPU with its measly 1.1x. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Performance per watt of the NVIDIA card was just hilariously bad. Well, sure. Sure. So what I've ended up doing, actually, and this is to go back to Ryan's question now, is I've ended up splitting things back out into physical boxes. The Blue Iris box is uh, an HP 290 Slim that I already had. I've put the i5 back into there, and I bought another i5 to put into my server, so I have two now, which is a shame, but hey-ho. <laughs> um, I was doing some testing on the HP 290 for average power usage. When I say idle, what I mean by that is Blue Iris is running with its normal sort of load, so an average sort of use power usage I see on that box is anywhere from sort of 10 to 25 watts, depending on what it's doing, which for the performance I'm getting, you know, that kind of power usage is is fantastic, really. And then my main server is pulling it anywhere with, you know, it's got, I think, 12 hard drives in it, anywhere from 40 to 80 watts uh, at idle. So and it's, it's all pretty good, pretty low, you know, to have all that performance for under 100 watts at idle is, I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, thanks for sharing the details with us. You mentioned the blog in there. Well, Sam actually writes in with our next question. He's a new listener, and he says, I'd love to hear more about what Alex uses for building his blog and if you've experimented with any other options and what you thought. Thanks for the great show. Well, several years ago when I was launching LinuxServer.io, I actually had a personal blog, blog blog.ktz.me. That got turned into Linux Server's blog and eventually the Linux Server website, and that kind of took over and became its own thing. So we used to use WordPress, and then we moved to Ghost on Linux Server, and this would be, I, I dread to think how long ago, like five years ago. Um, we moved to Ghost, and it's been so solid. I then ended up spinning up Ghost for my own personal blog to do like travel writing and all that kind of stuff as well. So I use Ghost almost exclusively for blogging, um, and then the Perfect Media Server website is written in MKDocs. I live vicariously through you on Ghost, that was the route I thought I might go if I were going to set up a blog again. And uh, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes because I think that's worth checking out. Although they've changed their model a lot since I first originally found them. Now they seem like they're really focused on them hosting the blog. But you can still self-host and all that? Self-host out of a container, yeah. And I've actually got a custom theme. So I spent quite a bit of time before the Perfect Media Server 2020 edition came out making sure that my blog had search and a few other different you know like fav icons and and social media icons all that kind of crap so you can customize the theme relatively easily and all of that stuff is open source in github so you know i have no complaints about ghost at all it just does exactly what i need it looks pretty good and you see it all over the place on the internet really so i think that's kind of uh 
you know, proof is in the pudding. How 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 many blogs do you see that are in in Ghost? Quite a few. So yeah, it must be okay. All right. So I think our final question for today, Tamo writes in about user account management. Hi guys, I'm a new listener and this show is perfect for me. I started at episode one. Well, thank you. Uh, I was wondering if you have done a podcast about how you manage different servers and user accounts. Do you have LDAP or some kind of centralized authentication? Uh, I'm finding creating unique user accounts for every server and saving their credentials every time to be a bit of a pain in the bum. Uh, I was wondering if you have any thoughts. Looking through the episode descriptions, I didn't find anything about this. Thanks, Tamo. Good question, because it's been on my mind a lot. Recently, Linux distributions like Fedora and Ubuntu added checkbox Active Directory support to their installers. And that got me thinking, yeah, almost almost wouldn't mind having like an Active Directory set up here on the LAN, either, either actual Active Directory or some Samba Frankenstein version of it. But truthfully... I, what I have landed on is standardized accounts. So we have a standardized studio account, and I have an account on all the systems. And the people who work here at the studio, we know those logins. And then for our server logins, we use SSH keys. But I do long-term have my eye on systemd, homed as a potential way to solve this, at least here on the LAN at the studio. Uh, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But essentially, it it takes your home directory and all of your user information and puts it into JSON. <laughs> and then you can drop this home directory bundle into a systemd, homed enabled system. And not only does your home directory show up there, but you also then become a user on the system. That's obviously me giving you the short version, but it has some potential. So you could see here in the studio where Perhaps we'd keep our master home D directories on the server and then R sync them down to the studio machines and my workstation, I don't know, every hour, every 24 hours. I don't know. I haven't really looked into it yet. But if we did that, it would also sync down our user credentials. Early days, just something that's on my horizon, kind of keeping on my radar as a possibility because I don't need something too advanced. I've managed large LDAP single sign-on installations in the past as part of my job and it worked surprisingly well for a long time, and I just don't really have an interest in doing that anymore. I mean, you could spin up LDAP. You could do free IPA. You could do a lot of things, but... could do Active Directory. It kind of sounds kind of fun. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know about you, but I, I've got to the point over the last decade where I'm managing so many different systems. Some of them are in different houses or different cloud providers or stuff like that, that having them sync back to a central uh, authentication would just be so complicated I've, I've kind of got i feel like half decent at context switching between the different servers and knowing oh right i don't have that particular setup on this one and any files i do need to sync between various things i have my nas and i just mount that via samba and i i don't really worry too much about the home directory anything that's in there is in my opinion at least is ephemeral it goes in git or it goes in samba or it gets lost that's kind of how i treat it yeah I think in part uh, it's because I have, in full disclosure, I've accepted a security practice on the land of the studio that probably you shouldn't do, and that is we don't rotate passwords very often, <laughs> maybe once every couple of years. But then again, it's convenient. I'll give you that. Yeah, and as far as physical access goes, it's a real small handful of people. It's not like an organization with an office of 20 here. <laughs> and then for the, for the servers, uh, it's it's pretty much all down to – 
SSH keys and all remote login is usually done with that. Any access to the LAN is done with WireGuard and that has its own set of keys. So there's some layers there. Every now and then, I still think it's a fair question. I still think to myself, I could do this a little better. And I I do fantasize about a future where I deploy everything programmatically and then everything has central sign-on and central storage. But uh, I think I'd have to I'd have to like clone myself to get there. <laughs> but this goes back to the point at the beginning, right? You you use Arch because you just want to get stuff done, and I yeah. think we don't use a central authentication system because we don't we just want to get stuff done. Like we don't want to spend the week or two figuring it out and setting it up, and then every time we reinstall a box, attaching it to a domain controller or whatever it is. Right. I think it's just pragmatism, isn't it? That means we're lazy and don't do it. <laughs> maybe that's a bit of it we've gotten old what we need is a young ssh uh intern to come into the studio and whip us together and get a single sign-on going <laughs> yeah maybe maybe <laughs> thank you to our members over at selfhosted.show slash sre thank you for supporting the show just a little bit of business before we go everything we talk about is over at selfhosted.show as always you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact for all the ways to get in touch with us you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. I'm there too, at Chris Elias, and the show at Self Hosted Show. On Discord, I'm at AlexKTZ. Thanks for listening. That was selfhosted.show slash 39. All right, so talk to me about this. You, we kind of talk about 3D printing, and you always say to me, oh, I want to get into it, and then a month goes by, and then you say the same thing again, and... <laughs> You know, it's like when what I don't have like that thing that I have to solve. I feel like when when I this has been my problem for like two three years. I've wanted to really just kind of have fun with a three D printer. I think it's something my kids could enjoy too. I haven't had like that project that I've been inspired to. But yet I know that if I could get into three D printing, I would probably come up with all these great little gadgets and solutions for stuff on the RV or even here in the studio, little widgets. Like I know I would eventually get there. It's like I just can't get started, and now you're lapping me. You're lapping me, and I haven't even gotten off the the start line. I think what you mean there is I've ordered another 3D printer, right? Yeah. So I use it to do all sorts of cool and interesting stuff. I originally got into printing to print drone parts, racing drone parts. Because they're little circuit boards from China, they're often not standardized, so you need little brackets or... yeah. I'm not very good at CAD, but I'm good enough that I can model a very basic geometric shape and then print that out. And 10 minutes later, I've got a real thing. One of the coolest things I've ever printed for my dash cam in my Golf is a rear mounted dash cam bracket. Yeah. How come you haven't printed me one? <laughs> I wrote a blog post about it, of course. Of course. I'll put a link to the blog post in the show notes and Telegram for you just now, darling. Um, and you can kind of see the the end result. And I thought, you know, I'm going to 3D print something that's going in a car that lives in the south of the US in the summer. It's going to melt and warp and deform. But actually, you know, it's been in, pro- in place now for, when did I write this post? November 2019. So it's been in place for a year and a half, and it's still just as good as the day I made it. Oh, I see. So, you, okay. This is pretty nice. I don't know if I have that skill set, though. I don't think I could do something like that. You say that. But I mean, you you look at, there's a picture in the post of how many prototypes I went through to get the right shape and the right profile to mount the dash cam around the correct, what have you. And there's two, four, six, eight, ten. I see. I see. So that's part of the process is refining it down. Yeah. If if you want to make your own stuff, like if you want to go through CAD and design your own crap, yes, 
this is an example of where if if you and I were in the same neighborhood, I would probably be a couple of years into my 3D printing journey, right? Because <laughs> you would just come over and be like, no, you just need to do it like this, dummy, <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh, I never even thought about printing a prototype. Oh, that's a great idea. But have you ever seen thingiverse.com? Yeah, only when you've shown it to me, but yeah, I've seen it. Man, that does really work well for that camera. That's a great That's a great shot you got of that camera mounted there. You guys got to go to blog.ktz.me and find this. Yeah, I know Thingiverse. I know. I know. It gives me does give me some ideas. The thing about Thingiverse is it's generally a bit of a crapshoot. A lot of the stuff that's there is is garbage. I'm a bit of a crapshoot. <laughs> a, a bit like GitHub in a way. Yeah, like, okay. Yeah. People throw a lot of stuff at the wall and only a bit of it sticks. But generally speaking, like if you look at my desk that I'm talking to you from now, I have my 3D printer in the corner behind me. Mm-hmm. I printed some shelf brackets and that's now holding my 3D printer up. I've got some, my audio interface that's connected to my microphone is a custom bracket for the Scarlett 2i2 interface that I use, Focusrite. My Thunderbolt dock, that's mounted with a custom bracket that someone made on Thingiverse. I've got an Ethernet switch in the same way. Like it just means I can organize stuff and just, I don't know, it's, it's not like, it's, it's not a, a world changing technology yet. This is what I'm talking about, though, when I say I know if I got into it, I would I could start figuring out solutions for the RV because storage and tucking things away and getting things in the right spot is like the key to sane life in a tiny in a tiny space. Are you looking at the camera right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that Mr. Meeseys right there? That's great. I'm Mr. Meeseys. Look at me. <laughs> I'm Mr. Meeseys. Did you uh, did you polish that? It's very, very, very shiny. Like you have to. No. So there's there's different filaments that you can get, and this is this is a PETG uh, filament. So it's it's the same sort of stuff that they make like the blister packs for you know like RAM and all that kind of stuff out of. Different filaments have different properties, and there are two main ones that people use. One is PLA, which is made from cornstarch, I think, which is fairly biodegradable and is very, very forgiving to print with, but it's quite brittle. Mm. This PETG stuff is less brittle and more resistant to high temperatures, which is why I used it to print the dash cam mount. But that comes at the cost of being more finicky to print with, so it, it has you know stringing and it is more shiny and looks a bit, plasticky compared to PLA, which is less shiny and stuff. So what you're saying is uh, I should come down in the fall and we should play around with the 3D printer on the show is what you're We could do that. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've just I've just bought another Raspberry Pi. I can't believe you. How many does this, <laughs> how many is this now? Three. Okay. All right. You can, so you're about halfway to catching up to me. <laughs> so one of them is running Pi KVM for my server another one is running octoprint on the raspberry pi and the other one is running dns i don't think that's too unreasonable when you think about it still it's still probably using less power than a big x86 box it's funny i'm looking right now at a raspberry pi nano tower case uh, on on thingiverse that looks really slick and it's basically like a little tiny 3d printed tower that you can slot a raspberry pi 4 into and an ssd usb and it makes it and I, that's another area with you know, I could see myself printing mounts for my Raspberry Pis. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of which. Oh, boy. I'm going to hold this up to the camera right now. This is a Pi 4 compatible. So this is something someone uploaded to Thingiverse. I'm showing it up to the camera. It's it's basically the bottom half of a Raspberry Pi case. Yeah. But someone's added a little 
bracket to the top, which means I can screw it directly into the 3D printer. Ah. And the pie just sits in there like... And it uses the aluminium heatsink of the Geekworm case and as the top half, and then the pie just slots in there like that. This is an example of when I say the network effect or the community around the Raspberry Pi that kind of sometimes still makes it more appealing than something like the Odroid. Because there you could you could probably totally find that for the Odroid, but you definitely could find a bunch of those for the Raspberry Pi, and you can everywhere. That kind of stuff where there's a dozen other people that are doing just that, or 100, 200, 1,000 other people that are using Raspberry Pi 4s to run their printers, so somebody made a bracket. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the adoption network effect that the Raspberry Pi benefits from. Absolutely. Well, okay. Now I'm more excited than ever. So the next common question from people really is, which printer do I buy? I think we might do an actual show segment on this, but... Okay, yeah, we should. M- my short answer is uh, is this. If if you want to spend all of your time tinkering with your printer and, you know, making it work is, is your hobby, go for one of the cheap Chinese ones, like an Ender 3 or something like that. If you want to do 3D printing to print cool stuff, get a Prusa. Prusa. P-R-U-S-A. So... The Ender 3s look really attractive because they're in the sort of two $300 price range. Compare that to the Prusas with a similar bed size, they're $750. So, you know, twice, two and a half times the price. But what I will say is that my current printer is two years old. I've never had to once take it apart and completely rebuild it. I can press print and it will just, the first layer will just happen. 99 times out of 100, I could just walk off and leave it and it will just work. And I had one of the cheap Chinese printers when I was in London and sold it before I moved. And it was just a, an exercise in frustration. I did not enjoy 3D printing when I had that printer, but with the Prusa, it just works and I freaking love it. 